definitely. Definitely. It gets right in the way, doesn't it? Wanting it to be, uh, to be perfect. It does, mate. And I really appreciate your time because I think the wonderful thing for all the ills associated with social media and it sometimes being antisocial, one of the best things for me is exposing myself to gents like you who are just, without sounding too cheesy or too out there, connect more on an intimate level because I think many need intimacy as well, but not in a, a classic intimate, that kind of sense, but intimacy in a different sense, just finding mutually minded people and you are one of those so thank you for joining me oh mate well yeah it's my pleasure and thanks for the invite and right back at you dudes you know same same thing you know it's a real uh for all its ills with social media that there's a real beautiful thing about connecting and um yeah there's like a real community you know you can find these communities on um you know on instagram in particular i find that's where i'm comfiest um and you know so many people that are now friends real life friends that started off as you know podcast friends or um instagram friends and yeah it's a real it's a it's a special special thing man it's a special i thing. think so because there's people just wouldn't show up on your radar otherwise and i think just if you've got a uh, interest in the complexities of the flawed human not everyone's as open and honest and vulnerable about their flaws so it's only through friends of friends that opens the doorway to meeting mutually minded people how are you sir i mean i'm good you know yeah i'm pretty good yeah it's nice you've had a busy uh, couple of weeks though as well from what you tell me mate yeah just just life really man mm-hmm. it's coming up to that time um of summer holidays right so it's like mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks has been um all the end of school stuff so i'll constantly be at the school whether it's to pick people up at funny times or to look at some school work or to go to a party or whatever it is um, and I'm used to like, I, I tend to like work the first part of the day, then I get the next part of the day to myself and then I might go back in the evening. So I'm mm-hmm. used to having this like little chunk of time where I get me naps in and do all me things I need to do and I haven't had it. So it's just like, yeah, it's just been a bit chaotic, but that's how life goes sometimes. Eh? Absolutely. I think the, the impossible standards placed on parents as well, just the infrastructure and how the, the, I guess the school educational system was set up however many years ago is exactly the same as it was, but society shifted so much because I find with I mean, my youngest isn't at school yet, but he's at nursery. And that's enough to remember, like, has he got enough nappies? Has he got his milk packed? Are there wipes? Have I picked his food selections for dinner that week? And it's exactly the same for my older one, except for has she done her homework? Has she done her reading? Has she remembered a pound for whatever calls they are doing that day? If she hasn't, I feel like a terrible parent. Have I remembered her decorated spoon for Halloween? If not, let's run that in. It's just there's so much to remember as well as, managing this equilibrium of your own well-being on some level and yeah. living life <laughs> yeah the minor task of living a life in between indeed yeah it's a lot it is a lot i'm always like quite aware of the fact you know I, i'm self-employed and i can make my own day to some respect you know and i just think like how do other people do it you know mm. how do other but i can randomly be free at you know two in the afternoon to drop off the gymnastics kit that i forgot which is you know something that happened the other day it, you know like it is i can do these things but yeah i mean i use i nine to five it for a long time and i, I don't I, you know that that's twice as hard then if you're locked in the hours and the kids are locked in their school hours and yeah it doesn't match up it's uh you know we all got hands on dad from what you tell me as well so it's in terms of value that you have associated with that time with your family it's that much more important because that resonates a lot with me because I think we are quite like-minded in that because I, I do the school drop-off and pick-up and I've got to a point probably a little bit, I don't want to say wise, I'm definitely older, that you realise what's important, but often you find that stuff out the hard way. That's not yeah. stuff that becomes apparent to you when you're younger, in your 20s and you're immortal. But something that struck me, which we did actually get an opportunity to speak about last time, but I don't know much about your journey of sobriety. And as you kind of mentioned and alluded to on your point, in your post is that um it is a I guess poignant topical conversation i wonder whether you mind talking about it mate yeah yeah sure no problem at all i uh, like um crikey i i i've always i started drinking young like all british kids did right there was never anything like particularly unusual about about that park, you drink get up to mischief that's it mate yeah yeah you know all chip in for your bottle of cider and 10 fags and, and off you go but um um I, just, I always really liked it and i always knew i was really good at it 
and uh they, they, I yeah I suppose I know now from a lot of therapy and a lot of looking back and exploring that I was a very anxious kid particularly through my teens uh periods of depression through then as well and uh, then I just didn't know what that stuff was um and yeah drink gave me a confidence it made it felt like I was always uh, a few steps behind all my mates but when I had a drink in me then I was I was equal to them you know then I had the the confidence that they had and I was able to do the things that that they did um so yeah, I kind of always lent on it, you know. Always, uh, always a bit of a bit of a crutch without knowing it was, if that makes any sense. And I suppose through my teens, I was kind of, I was always known as someone who'd be up for going out. Like, you know, I went out anyway, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if anyone's like, do you fancy a pint on a Wednesday? I'm like, yeah, yeah, up for it. You know, it was very much part of my life as well as being a crutch. And when things are like that, you can kind of hide the fact that it's a crutch, you know, because if you're all in a pub having a pint, you're all having a pint for different reasons. And, you know, my reason was to, to make me brave. Yeah. To kind of quiet down that voice in my head and that nagging anxiety and to, you know, to be able to stop second guessing myself and wondering what people were, you know, may or may not have been saying about me. Um and uh, yeah, I worked for a long time. I went abroad. I got to about 20. I went abroad to work and I worked for a holiday company and I was over there for like nine years. And um you know, then you're really able to hide a kind of, you know, a likeness of drink because everyone's on it. Everyone's drinking like it's a, a, you know, like they're on holiday and they're working away from a, for the summer. People are drinking every day. So it's really easy to kind of hide your reasons why. And even at this point, I was probably never really aware that I was drinking for those reasons. Um, and yeah, I just. What did that look like at that time, if you don't mind me asking? Like, what was that? What did that look like for you at that time in terms of, you know, I think when people, uh, certainly I think, because in terms of addiction and people that may drink is actually get people that function quite well on it. Like you'd never, as an objective onlooker, you would never be able to tell. Whereas I think the worst, the most extreme examples maybe maybe people have seen in films is this dysfunctional, unable to do anything kind of person. That doesn't strike me as you though. So what did that look like day to day? Yeah, that, that's a, a great question. I wouldn't even, I've never really described myself as an alcoholic. I just drank too much. There was times over my life when I knew when I'd be like waking up in the morning and thinking about having a drink as soon as I woke up, they tended to be coinciding with my mental health being like through the floor. Um, at the end, because I worked seasonally at the end, towards the end of the season, I'd be just burnt out from just caning it all year. And then things would get, you know, a little bit dark, you know, and then I'd come home um, and maybe I'll just like hang out at home for a couple of months and like, and not drink at all, you know? Okay. So it wasn't like, it wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't like the, that craving. I, I wouldn't describe myself as an alcoholic. No, mm. not at all. Um, it, I was just able to hide in plain sight because everyone's drinking, you know, everyone's party. It's culturally accepted and encouraged though, isn't it? It's yeah. like, you're almost the odd one out if you don't drink these days and, it's quite an awkward conversation. I've been in many situations I can think of, whereas it's not that I don't drink. I just don't drink often. And I know Quan saying no to a drink, but it becomes a big issue for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I always think when you kind of sober it kind of, I think most people would say, um, I'm going to speak on behalf of most people now, Dan, but I think most people would say that, you know, we do as a society, we have a very strange relationship with alcohol. A lot of people drink a little bit more than they should, and it doesn't quite impact their their life massively. So they get away with it. But maybe like deep down, you know, that I always kind of knew I was drinking too much. Um, and when you're sober, particularly if you do something sober that people think they can't do, like go to a someone's wedding and have fun, um, it kind of holds a little mirror up to people. You know, mm. it kind of like, I've always found people used to like want to sabotage me and I'll say, oh, I'm not drinking at the moment. And I never said I was stopping. I was always like, I'm not drinking at the moment. And then that moment just kept lasting and lasting and lasting until I felt I could say, oh, I don't drink anymore. Um, but yeah, so oh, I'm not drinking at the moment. And then people would say like, oh, if you can have one, you know, or, oh, don't be boring. That's, that's the classic. It's like, go on, have one, have one. And then when you can't talk me into it, you're going to insult me. You're going to make me feel bad about myself. So then I join in and be like everybody else, you know, yeah. and it like, that was so, so common. He's going to change your mind. Yeah, that's it. And I think, you know what, right. I could just go to bar now, do a load of shots, get levered, join in. And you would forget I'm here in an instant because mm -hmm. whether I'm there or drunk or not has no impact on me all night. Do you know what I mean? But people just want to kind of like lure you in. And then once I was in, they probably would have just been like, oh, you know, he's boozing now. We'll just let him, let him get on with it. You know?
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but kind of, I always say that I had a really good relationship, I've re- relationship with booze until I didn't. You know, I was quite happy caning it. That's what young people are supposed to do. And yeah, I was reliant on it. And yeah, I did used to kind of um, do... I don't know. It allowed me to do more things. It allowed me to be more comfortable. I'd always have a sneaky drink before I had to do something brave. Um, but yeah, as I got older, then my relationship with it changed in that I couldn't handle it. Um, I became quite a, quite a mean drunk, you know, like often I'd, I'd, I'd say I could never just have one. That was always a, a thing for me. I was never that person who could have one. It was like a, a night out hammered, you know, I'd black out a couple of times a week. That was quite normal. That was to the point where like, it wasn't even abnormal for me to do that. Do you know mm. what I mean? It was like accepted. I accepted that two or three times, if I was going to drink every night, two or three times of those, I'd like the last thing I'd be remember is getting out of taxi, even though like my mate to tell me we'd been out to like four or five and I'd think, fuck, I've been walking around for like five hours, talking to people, misbehaving, you know, and just like, I, I have no recollection of it. Um, but yeah, I kind of like, yeah, and that started to turn, the things I would do in those time periods would like not be very nice, um, you know, and I'd wake up and me and my, I'd just wake up and just have a horrible feeling in my stomach and I'd know I'd done something to upset my wife or I'd like played up in some, caused some sort of commotion, got into an argument for the sake of it, you know, it was just like this nastiness was coming out and, mm-hmm. and I'd start saying like, right, I can't do it anymore. I can't drink anymore. I can't keep upsetting Kim. I can't keep behaving this way. I feel embarrassed about myself. And then I'd go a couple of months and I wouldn't have a drink. And then I'd be like, well, yeah, a couple of months, feel pretty clean, feel pretty good. You know, I'll probably just have one. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes I would just have one. And it would be like, oh, cracked it now. Went out last week, only had a couple of pints, didn't even get pissed. You know, wife still loves me. Everything's great. And then, you know, and then I'd go out again and we'd go out on a Friday and I'd still be boozing on a Sunday and fucking, you know, just causing absolute chaos. And I'm like, that's it. I'm fucking, I'm quitting now. I'm stopping. I'm giving Mm. up. And I did that for about two years. Um, and then like when my son came along and my mental health like really, really like collapsed. Um, then yeah, there I, I, there was there was an, a night where I kind of like did some stupid stuff. And it weren't even considering all the stupid, daft, horrible stuff I've done when I was drunk over the years, it wasn't even a particularly big night, but it kind of brought enough um uh yeah fuck it i'll talk about it well i went out to see i went out to a gig in liverpool with my mate and i was supposed to get i promised my wife because her baby was like um would have been about a month old probably about this point maybe a little bit older and i said to my wife oh you know i'll definitely be back i'll get the last train back and you know i'll behave myself and all the rest and i didn't i missed the last train and i stayed out and fucking got pissed and me and my mate had a fight and he stormed off and uh ended up like in, in liverpool in the middle of the night fucking pissed in a mood just like acting like a massive toddler and i rang my missus and she had to come and get me and she had like the baby in the back of the car and then we're driving through liverpool and i'm feeling all ashamed and there's all these like drunks jumping out in front of the car going way you know like this poor little baby in the back and mm. i was like fuck man i'm a dad now i can't be doing this shit anymore like i can't and i felt so ashamed um but you know the way i uh with my mental health stuff i kind of have quite low self-worth anyway shame's a problem for me guilt's a problem so that all kind of like compounded um in me and that was the last time that was the last time i i, I got drunk i was just like that's it i can't i've got kids now man i can't keep acting like a massive kid myself um, and that was the last night. So as things go, compared to some of the stuff I've gone on, that's nothing really. Like I got a bit drunk, got acted a bit daft and, you know, embarrassed myself in front of my wife and me mate. But yeah, that was enough. The guilt and the shame around that was enough to me go, I'm not doing it again. And I've not, not done it again. So yeah, it was a strange, a strange night that led me to stop. But yeah, not, um, certainly not the wildest, but there you go. And that's what it needed. That's what I needed. Shame's a really strong word though. It's something like I speak here, men speak about less. What did, I mean, can you take that back? Like, were there elements of shame earlier in life? Because I know you said it was booze, a little bit of a, a crutch for you and that it helped you deal with your anxiety. Mm. But was there anything you can think back to that brought about those feelings earlier on in life? I think for me, I kind of created, I created an environment to keep me safe. And then that environment, those that thought processes, they held me back throughout my life. So because I was, uh, because I was anxious, because I was, scared. I never really like backed myself and then I'd have to justify that behavior. So, um, I didn't do very well in school because I was far too worried about what people, um, thought of me, you know, I was far too worried about blending in. I never really applied myself. So I wasn't one of the naughty kids. I wasn't in trouble all the time, but I never fulfilled my potential. I just kind of sat in the middle of the pack and that was very like purposeful really. Um, although I wouldn't have known that at the the time. And then because I didn't do very well, then I'd start saying, well, I didn't do very well because I'm thick. 
you know so like, it's because i'm stupid you know that's that's why you know you can't expect anything more from me i'm a fucking idiot why would you ask me anything and then you know so that became my kind of reality and then i've I made a lot of choices based on that so i went for jobs that didn't didn't inspire me or fulfill me or you know didn't ask very much of me and then i became very fucking happy because if you've got a job that doesn't fulfill you if you have no purpose um well that's in a bit of an energy drain right if you're spending 40 hours a week doing something you hate um, you know, so then a lot of things like that. So then you've got a job that you hate and you're saying horrible things about yourself. So you go out the weekend to kind of lift your spirits by having a few drinks. And then, cause you, you feel great for the first time in ages, then you have a load more drinks. And so, you know, yeah, for me, it was kind of like anxiety was, yeah, just kept me in a certain place. But then as mm. I journeyed through life, um, it just made me live, which forced me to live really inauthentically. I think I tried so many masks on to try and find, safety that i kind of lost sight of um of the real me underneath i've no idea who i was all these different identities all these things i wanted to be but wasn't that what i should be but wasn't um so i suppose yeah wrapped up in all that deep down knowing that i wasn't backing myself that i wasn't living to my fault that i was taking the easy route doing things that weren't aligned you know a lot of shame around a lot of shame around that you know mm. I think that resonates with a lot of people that finding worth and value in appeasing everyone, almost being people pleasers to a certain level. So rather than draw a line in the sand and, you know, teenage years are difficult already. You want to be liked by everyone. We don't have this understanding that we don't like everyone. So it's ridiculous to expect that everyone should like us. So we spoke about this a little bit when we spoke before is the, the chameleon effect almost is that you can comfortably sit in all these different groups and cliques, but actually don't feel yourself in any of them. And something that you mentioned there as well, when you, you know, you was talking about anxiety and how that came out with, do you think in terms of like numbing out that the inner critic, which I always refer to as the inner shitty committee is something again, will resonate with a lot of people because we speak about compassion. We speak about kindness and perhaps the advice that we'd offer for others is not the advice we apply to ourselves and the power of that, the powerful, the power of that negative self-talk really does have physical implications. Do you think, and this is me being really cautious. Obviously, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the booze offered a good way of numbing that and quietening that down a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. It gave me a confidence. I never, when I was drunk, I never second-guessed myself. You know, I never worried about saying anything in case someone took it the wrong way. And I never, um, you know, I knew I was funny when I was, mm. when I was drunk. I knew I was... Um, you know, I was cheeky. I was exciting. I was, you know, I'd make things happen. I'd get up to mad stuff. You know, it gave me the confidence to really be, you know, I remember um, reading an interview weirdly with Noel Gallagher and he talked about giving up cocaine. And he said that cocaine used to make him feel like Jim Carrey and Superman at the same time. And I remember reading that and thought, that's me drunk you know like i just feel like i could take on the take on the world when i was when i was pissed and it, yeah it definitely um you know and that's a nice feeling right that's a nice feeling when you don't feel like that for most of the time to have like to even have a respite to turn down the voice in my head is uh was just it was just it was lovely it was amazing you know it was uh it was like a really pleasant bit of respite so yeah definitely yeah booze just kind of like dampened all that all that down for me yeah very very much so you we've spoken a little bit about mental health as well and certainly your awareness about it and not being aware of it at that time at all but when you did make that bold decision and brave decision because i think often when we talk, talk about sobriety now it's you, you hear about how much people have turned their life around what i found really refreshing with what you put out there the other days how you still mourn that part of your life as well how that you know there's elements of that that you miss which i think is in incredibly truthful and you know often when we hear about people improving their lives they don't acknowledge the things that they miss despite acknowledging it was hugely unhelpful or destructive at that time yeah yeah i mean that you know that sort of that character i just described i miss being him you know mm -hmm. of course i miss being him and like you know, I'm a lot older now, you know, and I've got more responsibilities and stuff. So, you know, maybe I couldn't be as cheeky and as adventurous, but yeah. And I, you know, I still have problems with that voice in my head. Um, and now, and yeah, you know, all these like tools and tips and things you get from therapy and all these tools, they're, they're all great and they all work, but they're not as effective. If I'm being quite honest, they're not as effective as sort of four or five pints. And um, yeah, it's uh yeah, I do. I, I quite often when I'm, when I'm in a bad patch, when I'm not doing very well, I really, really miss it. Cause you just think like all these thoughts going around my head, all this, 
even though I know a lot of them aren't true and even though I know what this is and I know what to do about it, the idea that I could just go and, you know, your son's out, sit in a pub garden. Do you know what I mean? Like just have a few and all this could go away. Like, oh mate, you know, like it's just, it's just lovely. That sweet, I mentioned in that post, that sweet spot between three and six pints. If I could sit in that for the rest of my life, mate, <laughs> I'd take over the world. I would mm. take over the world. You know, I would reach my potential. Um, yeah. <laughs> I haven't found anything that can, uh, can help me feel like that since if I'm being, if I'm being honest. And since that, but obviously that was, you've acknowledged that that was a tool at that time. And we can be equip ourselves with all these things and still sometimes they'd be totally ineffective. When you took that, because you've done a lot of work on yourself clearly and by your own admission, when you took that number one and only tool away at that time, what was the impact on that? Yeah, well, around that, around that time I mentioned before my son had been born and that's when I really became aware that I was struggling. I'd been poorly for a long time. So the only way I can describe it really is there was like a leak in the basement and it was so small that I never really had to acknowledge it. Um, and then when my son was born, it was like the pipe burst, you know, and the basement flooded and then the foundations rotted and the fucking house fell down, you know, like it was, it, it just went from nothing to everything. And yeah, it, I, yeah, I didn't have a crutch. I didn't have any techniques. I didn't know what it was. I didn't mm. know what was going on with me. And I genuinely thought I was going, I was just going mad, whatever that is. My vision of that at the time, one of the reasons I didn't tell anyone what's happening is because I thought, how can I tell people like these horrible things I'm thinking about myself? How can I say what I'm feeling? I've just had a baby. They're going to take him away. You know, if I, if I, go to, I didn't, I mean, I, it never once crossed my mind to go to a doctor, not once. Like that's mad. It's about two years. My wife said to me, do you want to go to the doctor? And I said, what about, you know, to, what to tell her that? No fucking way, you know? Um, and yeah. And I was like, they'll take my son off me or they'll lock me up, you know, or, the, or all, my, all my clients from my business, they'll stop coming. Why would anyone come to someone who says things like that about himself? You know, there was so much sort of self stigma and, um, and just lack of awareness and knowledge and uh you know but my frames of reference were weird things like um you know one floor over the cuckoo's nest you yeah, know well, like like in the movies yeah yeah cultural displays or, or you know i was watching a bit of homeland and i was like oh are they gonna like strap me down like carrie matheson and put electrodes in my head you know mm. like am i gonna end up in a in a straitjacket in a in a ward it, like it yeah I, those were genuinely were my fears and then it was like I can't, I can't let that happen. So I'm going to have to fucking win this. But I wasn't coming at that with any like tools or awareness. It was purely just white knuckle, pretend it's not happening, push it down. Um, you know, one, what I've since found, and I think it's common with a lot of men is one emotion I'm very comfortable with is anger. And I wouldn't have described myself as an angry person before, but that kind of, that suited me. So I'd be very aggressive. There was no compassion how I talk about myself. You know, I'd sit I'd, I'd, like on, on a really bad day. You know, I wouldn't like let myself cry. I'd push all that down and I'd, l I'd look in the mirror at the end of our bed and I'd say, get a fucking grip, you can fucking sort this out. I'd talk to myself like that, like I was in a, in a, a scrap in a pub car park. You know, that's how I spoke to myself. And I'd say it out loud. And then I'd come downstairs and be like, hey, how are we doing? Hey, little man. And like picking the baby up and stuff like that. You know, it was like, it was, yeah, that I had no, no tools, no way of dealing with it. And in a way, weirdly, it probably really helped me with the drink thing because I was like, you know, I was aware enough to know that there's no, cause I didn't know that drink was a crutch for me. When you're behaving like that, I was like, what if I, if I got really drunk now, I'm barely stopping myself from doing something really stupid. What if drink gives me the confidence to do that thing? You know, so it was, it became more in a way it kind of started, it really helped me stop because one thing I did know that that, <laughs> that was not going to making me brave then was uh, not going to help the situation at all. You know, not at all. Yeah. Where do you believe that came from? Was that just a realization you made at that time? Like as in you developed this way of, of talking to yourself in that way, because it was, I don't know, was there a societal impact to that? Is it something you can think back to? Was it, you know, perhaps how your parents dealt with things or. Yeah. When we learn that stuff, I'm interested as men, especially like, I don't want this conversation to be just about men, but as two men talking out loud, because a lot of that speaks to me and how I dealt with things, especially anger is this, this cultural expectation that 
back then especially obviously there's more talk about vulnerability now but it's difficult to be vulnerable when there's no vulnerability reflected back at you and there's a safety when you mimic and mirror how other men deal with certain things so there was that cultural shift to push it down don't deal with it chin up fucking just get on with it mm. yeah um, oh, I, mate i don't really know i was a teenager in the 90s you know, lad culture. And I liked all that, you know, I was a big fan of, you know, football and Oasis and loaded magazine and, you know, a bit of casual misogyny and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That was very much a, that was the the world I, I grew up in. Um, and, you know, a lot about being a lad is, you know, potentially getting into fights and stuff. That wasn't me. I was never a fighter. I've never been in a fight, but you had to look as if you could, you know, you had to, you had to give off the vibe because the only way of not getting the shit kicked out of you is if people think that you might fight back. Right. So I did walk with a bit of a swagger in my step, you know, like that I did kind of like, you know, chest up a little bit. There was nothing to back it out. Let me make that a hundred percent clear. That was not my world at all. Um, but I think a little, there was an element of, of that, you know, like, a like I said, lad culture in the nineties, it's all that Liam Gallagher swagger. Right. Do you know what I mean? And all my mates were doing the some the same thing. And some of them were really hard and some of them could fight. And, you know, some of us couldn't, but we're all kind of all together. You're all mates together, right? In a big pack. Um, so yeah, there was probably a little bit of, a little bit of that, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. We were around the same age. Cause I think it's also the kind of films that we watched at that time uh, just popped up on Netflix, actually human traffic, football factory, yeah. you know, all of those type of movies. It was our exposure to British gangster movies, Lockstock, Snatch, all of those were coming around that time. So you almost wanted to emulate those characters to a certain degree because they were the ones getting respect. You know, mm. it wasn't, you didn't see masculine and well, I guess not, not obviously not that I believe that now, but what you would associate with masculine being strong, push that stuff down. Whereas we obviously know, masculinity is kind of a non-binary term now yeah what you would associate with that back then was all of those characteristics that you described yeah definitely and it's like what else have you got what else have you know so if i'm feeling overwhelmingly sad and all i want to do is have a massive cry well one boys aren't supposed to cry geezers don't Mm. cry lads don't cry do you know what i mean secondly well i've never been a crier before so what the fuck is this because this is alien to me because i i don't remember like previously crying and now i feel like i really really have to and then thirdly what if i start and i can't stop what if this is the start of it what if i let a little bit out and next thing you know i'm rolling on the floor making funny noises and my wife's like phoning an ambulance and then i don't see my baby again right so you just like it was that sort of not knowledge i didn't even know what emotions are one of the hardest things for me when I started therapy was my therapist to say how does that make you feel but I don't know I was just numb there was nothing everything was so pushed down there was numb and then they'd keep asking and keep asking and I'd be like what do you keep fucking asking that question for anger right is is the only thing that like was available to me like there was no um yeah so yeah maybe it's from like society maybe it's from years of like pretense and trying to be a lad and one of the lads um and i I, other than that i don't know you know i I think it was just kind of it was the only tool i had at the time Um, that is the emotional granularity i think quite a lot of people will have unless they have done some concerted deeper work with this is angry sad happy um (laughs) what what other emotions are there yeah yeah the thing I speak to people quite often, especially when it comes to the relationship with food and the way they think about themselves is that when you get so good, for want of a better word, at suppressing the bad stuff, air quotations, because we know they're not distinctly good or bad, is that numbs out everything. So that affects the good times as well. Your feelings of happiness, contentment, you know, it might affect your relationship with your significant other because you feel like you're defective, you're broken because you're so used to suppressing everything because you're trying to avoid all those things that have made you feel uncomfortable, you end up suppressing a lot. Mm, yeah, very much so. Yeah. And looking for things to help you do that as well. You know, when I was, mm. when I was drinking less, when I stopped drinking, well, I ate a hell of a lot more. Do you know what I mean? I put on a lot more weight after I finished after I finished drinking, because it was just, you know, it was something else to, mm-hmm. to, you know, and I still do that now. I'm still bad for that now. I, I feel, if I feel stressed, if I feel angry, if I feel down, then I tend to eat my way 
eat my way through it and I can justify it. So oh, I don't drink anymore. Don't smoke anymore. Like, you, do you know what I mean? So it's like sugar's my only vice. Surely I'm allowed one vice. And then boom, that's the, that's how I unlock the, you know, that's how I unlock the metaphorical cookie jar and dive, dive straight in, you know. Dive straight uh, into the literal cookie jar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, yeah. That's one of those things, you know, in terms of acknowledging tools is they don't necessarily become problematic until it's your only tool in the toolbox, you know, and once you're, you've got it out, it's out for good. Yeah, or, or, or choosing to use it, right? So I choose behavior. So sometimes I feel a little bit overwhelmed and it's like, I need to get out of my head now. And I know that 15 of mindful minutes or, or mindless minutes rather on Instagram is going to get me, get me over this. And if I'm choosing to pick up my phone and scroll while having a handful of biscuits, and then after that, I say, right, okay, you know, like I either need to address this or move past it. I'm going to put my phone that now I'm going to, you know, zip up the sweet bag. Well, that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's when I don't know that I'm doing it mm. or I'm choosing to do it and using that as an excuse to do it for three hours, four hours, five hours. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like I know this isn't good for me, but it's what I need right now. And I'm aware that I'm doing it and I'm aware that I'm going to stop. It's just going to help me out short term because it's, you know, it's not that unhealthy short term you know yeah, absolutely i think context is key there and you, that awareness you have for that because i think so many people were in that perpetual cycle of escapism like i want to get out of my head now this makes me significantly uncomfortable right now in this moment what can i do to escape this i'm just going to scroll instagram but then what they expose themselves to are people with perfect lives which are seemingly the total opposite of what they're experiencing at that time which if they're feeling a bit anxious about that just exacerbates and it snowballs into this actually coming away from Instagram and looking at these wonderful lives that everyone else seemingly has feeling even worse about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I've, I've recently this year really addressed my relationship with like social media. And um, one of the things I do is if I go on Instagram, when I come off, I log out. And mm. then if I find that I just automatically pick up my phone and hit the app, then bump the login screen comes. And then I ask myself, you know, what type of person do I want to be? Do I want to be the person that just checked Instagram 20 minutes ago and now I'm on it again? Or do I want to be the person who doesn't need their phone during the day? And then, you know, and I make that decision and I kind of, I've been training my brain to, because mm. the most of the time, nine times out of 10, I will say, I don't want to go. I don't want to be doing this. Do you know what I mean? Like my kids are over there, go and play with them or, you know, go and do something useful, go and do the washing up, like just sit, whatever. Um, so yeah, like it gives me that it just gets in the way of the process enough to make me think. And then I'll say, which type of person do I, that's what I say in my head. What type of person do I want to be? Well, I don't want to be that type of person. So that means I've got to be this type of person, put it back down. And yeah, just like training myself over and over that again. thought interruption sometimes, just mm. enough to put a little bit of pause there because I've had to, I remove uh, Instagram off my, off my main screen. So I actually mm. physically have to search for the app. I don't go to the lengths of logging out, although I probably should, but I'm always stuck in this quandary of, there is a certain amount of me that, Instagram, it's not necessarily what I signed up to, but it's how, I guess, what I do professionally has evolved is essentially I got into coaching and that was one-to-one human-based social connection. But now, you know, that's, that's how I communicate with other people. So there's a certain amount of feeling obligated to dedicate a certain amount of time to it. But then where's, where's that line? When does it get blurry? When does this actually become more harmful and a hindrance to me? Because it is, it's, as you say, you just pick up your phone. Your thumb goes to the position where the app used to be. Yeah. that's how ridiculous it gets it's so true isn't it yeah yeah so true it's um yeah it's just a weird one right it's just mm. a just a weird one but there you when go. you spoke about that moment because I, when i speak to people about their mental health and especially i think mental health is a conversation people are more comfortable with when we talk about people that are experiencing being mentally unwell that's something everyone feels a bit uncomfortable about episodes of you know um outbursts whether it's mania whether it's debilitating effects of dealing with schizophrenia like all of those the worst type i guess the worst type if that's if that's the right descriptor but some of the unfathomable debilitating impacts certain mental disorders can have on people in their lives and it's often the accumulation of a lot of things because people naturally think oh if i meditate every day or if i journal every day that's going to be the solution to all and you know much to what we spoke about is when i can reflect back on my own struggles it's the accumulation of lots of things is not just one thing when you mentioned that time in your life especially when your son came along what did you feel was contributing 
to your declining mental health at that point? I think I'd been living so inauthentically for so long. You know, I had a job that I didn't like and that made me feel a certain way about myself. You know, that inner, inner narrative, you know, being anxious, avoiding things. I'd, I wouldn't be brave. So I'd avoid things that would probably be really good for my soul, you know? So I didn't have much in my life. I had no creative outlet. Um, I'd moved. So I live near Liverpool now. Uh, it's where my wife's from. We met abroad. So I moved here. So I didn't know anyone, right? So I didn't have any like friendships, you know? Um, so I was lonely and, you know, you can't, no one says they're lonely. They do now. They didn't then. Certainly I didn't then. Um, you know, you don't want to admit to being Billy no mate. Mm. And it's, uh, yeah. So, you know, I was lonely. I didn't really have any hobbies or interests or, you know, a lot of my hobbies were more behaviors, you know, like, you know, I used to, I don't know, go shopping for clothes. These quite like labels, which is ridiculous. Most of the time I dress like, <laughs> you know, like, like a tramp now, but, um, uh, it's just not important to me, you know, but, uh, yeah, it, I used to like shop for labels and I, I was just bored, just bored mm. of my life and just trying to like get dopamine anywhere, I, anywhere I could. So I think there was a lot of that stuff going on really, really just unhappy with where I found myself in life. No idea how to get myself out of it. And then a baby comes along and you have to address that stuff. I want to be a good dad, you know? So, okay, I'm anxious. I latch onto things and I obsess about them. So I can't just be a good dad. I have to be the best fucking dad that ever lived, you know? So straight away, I'm worrying about everything, you know, like it, it, my anxiety, it latches on onto things and then I get consumed by them. It drives me. And that can be a really positive thing. It's the reason I've got my own business. It's the reason the podcast, you know, is, is continuing to go. It, it, I can use it really well, but I can also use it really, really badly. And so that was like latching onto, latching onto things. You know, the baby would switch in the night and, you know, I'd, that's it. I'll be up. I'll be on my feet. You know, is he okay? Is he breathing? You know, is it too hot? Is it too cold? Should it be 36 degrees or 35 degrees? You know, like everything was just all the time i was never never off and then you know whisking away uh to sleep you know so that goes so i might have been scraping by on x amount of hours a night um but then when the baby came along that wasn't happening really worried about my wife you know my wife's health my wife's you know how was she doing was she coping you know was our marriage gonna be all right mate just the none of the worries or anything that new pair all new parents experience this stuff but with the anxious brain, like it, it's too much. Like I couldn't let it go. I, I get caught in these loops and I go round and round and round in, in circles where I just can't, it, it, it can't stop. It doesn't stop. You can't, can't make it stop. Um, and it, there was just too many things to obsess about. There's too many. It was just like, and it just bubbled up and up and up and up and up. And then it just break and I'd break. And then you know, you feel good after, you know, after like a, a, a massive cry and I'd smash my kitchen up. And then like, after that, I feel great, you know, because I'd let it out. Finally, I let it out, not in a particularly healthy way, <laughs> you know, like there's nothing like a panic attack to kind of like get all your emotions out. Um, and, but then afterwards, I'd be like, oh, cool, I've got this now. That's, that was just a blip. I've got this out of my system, you know, let's fucking crack on. Let's do it again. Man up, get it sorted. Come on, you can do this. You can be a good dad, you know, like let's fucking do it. Um, and then, yeah, and that cycle just repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, you know, yeah, it's just, just I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. And did you share that with anyone at that time? No, not so, not so. I mean, my wife knew something weren't right because I kept fucking smashing the kitchen up and like kicking doors and you know, like crying and all this sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, Kim didn't know what mental health was either. She didn't know what this stuff was. You know, she thought I was unhappy, like with our marriage and and with her and you know, and I was really really acting up because I wanted her. I wanted her, I didn't know what to do. And I wanted her to help me. I wanted her to save me because I was scared, but she didn't know I needed saving because I never told her that, you know, it was like my behavior was getting more and more bizarre. Cause it was like, well, if I, if I, you know, if I smash three cupboard doors in the kitchen instead of two, well, surely someone's going to step in. This is not right behavior. Surely someone is going to come to my rescue and say, this isn't right. You need to do this or you need to do that, or we're going to get you some help. But it was because I wasn't asking for it. I was just misbehaving. You know, I was just acting up like that. Then, it, you know, you can't expect people to, to help you if they don't know that you need help. And it sounds ridiculous that anyone would think I didn't need help, but it was just so much stress around at that time. And so much, you know, these incidents could kind of, it's a bit like that first um, Hulk movie with Ed Norton, you know? 
when Nike, the Hulk explodes and then the counter in the corner counts back down to zero and it says, oh, there's been like, you know, zero days since it. Sorry to take it off on tangent. That's the best Hulk movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate. But um, yeah, it's kind of, it was like, it was like, it was like that, you know, and you get past things pretty quick and then nothing had happened for a couple of weeks and inside I'd still be feeling it, but nothing was coming out, out. So then it's like, oh, maybe this, maybe that's the last time it'll happen, you know? So yeah, that was very, I didn't, oh, I didn't tell a soul, mate. Not, uh, not, uh, yeah, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it. And it's funny because the, as someone I now class myself as a mental health advocate, and I talk about this stuff a lot and, uh, you know, I'm so on board with the messaging of, you know, checking on your mates. And if, and if you think something's not right, ask twice. I'm so on board with that, that you would have asked me then no chance someone said what's wrong with you i'd have been oh mate i'm just tired a bit stressed new baby in the house in it you know it's just yeah it'll be fine and a bit no mate are you really all right straight away what the fuck are you asking that for do i look not all right what why are you asking me these questions you know straight away on the defensive there's no way you could have got through that through that barrier out of that i felt safe to kind of show that in the house in front of kim outside the house no one you wouldn't have known you wouldn't have known, you know, when we get these like high profile celebrities that um, died by suicide and everyone goes, I had no idea. That was me. No one would have you. I was such a good actor, such a good actor. You, I should have got an Oscar for that performance because you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. I had a, um, a, a situation where I left the house with the intention of taking my own life. And certain things happened while I was out that kind of dictated that I didn't. That was on a Sunday. I marched. I was, I was at my desk Monday morning. Do you know what I mean? So on Sunday. I was within like minutes, hours of taking my own life. And by the Monday, I was sat at my desk. You know, no one would have, no one would have known. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable how humans, how we can hide stuff and how we can flip stuff around and justify stuff and, you know, reflect stuff. Quite yeah. How perceptive a lot of us will think we are. A lot of this stuff could be happening under our noses. So I think it's with the intent of asking people twice how they are. And I don't know, some of it comes across as, quite tone deaf sometimes because you've got to be prepared to listen to that individual. So if you're asking that question, you better bet your ass you're prepared to deal with someone that they're most vulnerable because there's nothing worse than having been in that situation, spilling your guts out to someone when you desperately need help and just being so utterly disappointed by the response, almost having to console the person that you're sharing that with. Yeah. Because what you were talking there made me think of this kind of, I don't know whether it's ridicule is the right word, but perhaps when publicly people reach a point where they just, they can't deal with things at the moment. And there's what we call attention seeking. And there's a negative to that, I guess, or at least how it's framed, but also when people are attention seeking, that might be because they're limited capacity to communicate that, especially to their nearest and dearest. So if they're doing that broadly, especially on the internet and things like that, that is that person crying for help because not because they, well, because they do want attention because they desperately want someone to intervene. So I'm always more curious with that stuff now. Um, don't get me wrong, there's a fair share of sad fishing, I think, drawing attention for the wrong reasons on social media, whether it's for social currency, for likes, and this thing where everyone feels like they need to resonate with someone. So rather than elevate voices that are really doing crucial, integral work, is let's make this about me and share my experiences. Whereas if you're really and activists for that cause there are so many people out there that might not be well known doing fantastic work like yourself you know um so yeah it made me think about how we look at attention seeking and how we we view people reaching out because we have this hashtag be kind and we have this strength in speaking but then when people do that publicly well we don't like that either yeah yeah and it's easy it's easy to drop a hag on stuff and it's easy to you know share the share the, the nice posts and all, all that sort of stuff. You know, the way I like to see it is that I think sometimes we confuse Instagram reach with actually reaching people, you know, mm. that, that's how kind of how I like to, to look at it. It's easy to do a post and get loads of likes and loads of shares, and loads of engagement and turn your phone off and go, Oh, I'm such a good person. You know, I've put that post out there. You know, most of the people who see that post are not people who need to see that post. Mm. Most of the people who see that post are not going to act on that post. You know, like I, I had no idea. I could not have named one well-known mental health advocate i could have not named any charity other than the samaritans i could not have named any celebrity you know the the at one point i kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole because i was it was really four years i was kind of in that point and in the second two years i was more actively trying to get well and looking in a lot of the the wrong places but um and 
I, I never saw or heard anyone talking about this stuff who looked like me or who sounded like me, you know, and everyone was so far out the other side, you know, it was all, oh, I was really poorly. And, you know, now I run marathons and my life's great. And it, you know, there was never any, you know, there was nothing there that, that looked like me. And I think, yeah, that's kind of, that that's one of the the problems with I suppose that world that you know like you're saying about social media and, and how we use it to to connect and talk about these things and, and spread awareness and all that sort of stuff it's like there's got to be something for for everyone and you know yeah there was certainly nothing out there for me at that at that time yeah I, I mean maybe not the most optimistic I like to think of myself as a realist at least is that I think we all overvalue the value in air quotations that we put out there and I think sometimes what's framed as quite altruistic is actually quite self-serving. So we're, we're kidding ourselves a little bit sometimes. Don't get me wrong. I think, you know, the best intent in the world. And I think some of us are trying to truly do good work out there. But um, I think just the examples that we're exposed to, especially from high profile celebrities often and high profile influencers, it's it's still making the com- the conversation a comfortable one, the airy fairy, as you say, like there's an end date to it. Because the likeness that is always drawn is, you know, if someone had a physical ailment, like a broken leg is, you wouldn't ignore that. But arguably with a physical ailment, like a broken leg is that that heals, that's done, you know, until, you know, if you're unfortunate enough to break that leg again. Whereas this mental health quandary or, or mental illness quandary is, it's ongoing. Like a lot of people still frame it as an end point. And the, I guess the assumption would be that once you have found your even keel or you have your tools that you constantly rely on, that's it, you're sorted. That means you can manage those things ongoing. But I have a feeling, or I certainly can attest myself, is that that's not the case. Like I still have moments where I struggle and there's still sometimes when I throw all the tools I've got at it and I'm still not just about keeping my head above the water. What do you do now? If I fly on the wall, when you are going through those bouts, I know you said that nothing compares to that three or three to six point sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, remind yourself of, even if you don't have the tools at the time, because I think we can often have these rational conversations with ourselves, despite being rational and objective and understanding there's no logical reason for you feeling this way. It doesn't change how you're feeling about it at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting one. It's something that's been on my mind a lot recently in the last couple of months i've had a real wobble um and i uh yeah it came kind of came out nowhere i made the decision last year to come off my medication um that like i yeah that's my own personal you know decision i'd never encourage anyone to do that but um and i had a, a like best part of a year with no meds and things were great. And then I was using my tools, you know, you're like exercise is very good for me. Walking's very good. Um, you know, I walk every day, no matter what, no matter the weather, I get a little walk. Um, I do, I make sure I've got more creative pursuits. My podcast is a real creative pursuit for me. Um, you know, I, I started drum lessons last year, you know, like things to like kind of express myself and do different things, try and challenge myself and do little things that, you know, I feel I need to push myself on. Um, you know, sleep, naps, you know, speaking openly, you know, all the like stereotypical stuff, you know, and I'd, a good year. If you'd have asked me three or four months ago, I probably would have said I was the, the best I've been in my life um, towards the start of this year. And because of that, I thought I'd cracked it. Um, and the last couple of months, yeah, I had a slide, I had some like personal stuff happened and it just knocked me off center. And even knowing everything I know, and even having all the tools available to me, I just couldn't write the ship none of it worked you know none of it and then I started doubting it because it's all right when you when you're pretty good and you're doing all the things it's very easy to put two and two together and come up with four and go well I feel good because I'm doing these things and then when I wasn't well and I was doing those things then I was like well why aren't they working where's my tools now what's what's going on with me now and that almost became a bit of a stick to beat myself with um and yeah yeah it's been um yeah, really challenging. And the, the truth is, I don't know. I'm still trying to do all those things to kind of keep me because I know at a baseline level, I always think, you know, when it comes to any sort of health, like low hanging fruit, right? So I'm just, you know, you try and eat well, try and drink enough water, try and get some steps in, you know, try and move under loads two or three times a week, you know, all the, all the, the low hanging fruit. So I'm staying with all that stuff. But it made me doubt a lot of the things that I would very confidently have said on podcasts. Oh, I do this or I do that because it fucking deserted me. You know, I'm the first one to say, I'll oh, definitely talk about it. But you, you, 
that I didn't want to talk when like, you know, like a, a month or so ago when I was really feeling like I was in the depths of something, I didn't want to talk. And I started saying, well, I can't tell my wife, you know, cause she's going to worry that this is the start of something big again. And I don't want to worry her. So I can't tell her, you know, and it all starts again, you know, and it's like, you can't, you can't trust a poor, a poorly brain. You know, that's what I just kept saying to myself. You can't, this is not true, but fuck me. It felt true. You know, um, you just can't trust a, a, a poorly brain. Your poorly brain lies to you. Um, so yeah, like I, d- I don't know is the answer to that. <laughs> the answer to that. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing that, mate. Because you know, there's this again this whole vulnerability and talking kind of thing is that comes from a place of transparency, and it's difficult to be vulnerable with someone when it isn't reflected back at you. And you know, when you're talking about medication, there, there's this. You know, I am medicated now. That was that's something I haven't told anyone. And look, I might share this with people on the podcast. I don't know how many people actually listen to this apart from my mum, uh, who doesn't know that. So there you go, mum. But that's the I think the interesting part of that conversation is is medication can be trivialised, but when we're throwing everything else at it, and if you don't mind me asking, how long were you on medication for? Uh, about two years. I mean, it saved my life saved my life i had a a planned suicide attempt that was intercepted um and after that i went to the doctor and i started pills and within like two or three days you know and some of that i'm sure is placebo and i couldn't care less but within two or three days i felt like a new man i felt 10 years younger i looked different do you know what i mean my wife said to me i feel like i've got like the real tom you know me and kim have been together for like 16 years and she said i feel like i've I've got you back for the first time in years Mm -hmm. like it just changed everything and then suddenly all the stuff i was doing just worked all that therapy just kicked in overnight do you know what i mean suddenly i was just like sage like wisdom do you know what i mean energy to spare you know back in the gym all this sort of stuff and it and it was brilliant and um you know, and I, I did loads of work, loads of inner work. It gave me the strength and the foundations to be able to really dig into myself. And like before, I don't think, I, it's not even, I don't think, I know I hadn't been doing the work. I was talking about doing the work, I weren't doing the work because I'm articulate, because I can talk about this stuff, because I understand a certain amount of my story. I can hide from getting further into that story by talking about it, right? So my therapist will always say, you're dancing with me. You're dancing with me because I'll go off on some fucking monologue about my mental health and she'll be like, I didn't fucking ask you that. But it's, um, and yeah, and I was great. And that's why I wanted to stop because I was like, I think I'm in a position where I don't need these anymore. And I want to know that I can do it for myself, you know? And um, yeah, and I did. And it was great. And it was brilliant. And weirdly, after this blip, it got really, really bad. And um, my wife said to me, have you thought about going back on your pills? And I rang the doctor and I got an appointment and I got my prescription and I picked it up. And it's still there on the side in the kitchen. I haven't started on them yet. And it, I, I've just been trying to like explore how that pro firstly, as soon as I spoke to the doctor, as soon as I put the phone down, I felt great, you know, just having some tangible help. And then I had a couple of good days and I was like, well, maybe that was just a blip. And these are good days. Are they good days because they are good days or are they good days? Cause I've asked for help and that help came and that's like, you know, settled something down. Um, yeah. And weirdly i know that medication saved my life i've spoken openly about that in all sorts of places um and i have no like problems i've always said oh if i need meds i'll jump straight back on them and yet getting up the courage to ring my gp i felt that shame again mm. I felt that guilt i was like i'm trying to live a life without these but i can't have i failed you know, am I, am I ever going to be well? Am I going to spend, I'm a probably, you know, I'm 42. I'm probably about halfway through my life. Am I going to spend the next 40 years of my life trying to be better? Am I up to that? Is that fucking worth it? You know, these are the questions that are going through my head before I made that phone call. And then I rang the doctor and she was like, yeah, yeah. And get your prescription tomorrow. I was like, oh, sick, man. I've got me pills back. Everything's going to be great. I felt so good. I was like, well, I'm not taking them now. I feel great. You know, it's just that like roller coaster. And uh, to be quite honest with you, Dan, I still don't really know because you can't just hop on and off. Right. So if I start again, I know I'm looking at 18 months before I can try and stop taking them. And I'm kind of oh, put so much into this. Yeah. You know, um, so I don't even know where I fucking stand on meds at the moment, mate. You've caught me at a really funny time. Um, no, yeah, I, don't, they, they... I don't think it's <laughs> interesting to hear your insight because I don't think you necessarily need to, again, draw your line, draw a line in the sand with these things. I think it's just how, I don't know, we, we, we've got this quandary with how it's communicated is that 
everything's pathologized these days so everyone has a condition some people do have a condition but i also think that minimizes the people that are truly in the darkest depths of it and when we gloss over that and we give people these tools in our quotations about how someone else has managed their mental health and they can't quite do the same is we demonize medical intervention but actually meddling in medical intervention keeps people alive frankly because when you was talking about that i can you know i can reflect back on periods of my life where i was advised to stay on i knew i had to wean myself off i weaned myself off i was coping i was doing great until i wasn't because life has a habit of chucking shit at you as it inevitably does and you can't avoid that sometimes and um I guess my my avoidant behaviours or how I cope with things, they manifest in different ways. So over my lifetime, it's been exercise or it's been performance or nutrition or it's been my work, you know. Um, when my son's coming up to, and it was probably, I, I don't know whether I, I haven't spoken about this on the podcast. I'll talk about it anyway. I don't care. Um, it, Jax is a, I'm still not I'm still not sure of the terminology, but Jax is a twin or was a twin and his sister Maeve was stillborn and the emotional roller coaster of being overjoyed with one and dealing with the grief and loss of Mm -hmm. another was something I didn't realise I was really struggling with because of the implications to my wife who, you know, continued to carry both of them. She found that quite a comfort. I'm very grateful in that because I don't think everyone would respond in that way. Some sort of inherent failing on my part, although totally irrational, I had failed in the protection of something that should be the most sacred and precious to me. Ridiculous. You know, when we went for a routine scan, it was just found that she had unfortunately passed somewhere in the last 24 hours. There was no rhyme or reason for that. And um, after that, just keeping everyone else's head afloat and cooking three meals a day, taking my daughter to and from school, making sure my wife was all right. I just, I thrived in doing it all. And I picked up a master's at that time as well. I started a master's in um, neuroscience and psychology of mental health. Wow. Almost feeling a bit hypocritical because again, I didn't recognize, although I struggled with my mental health earlier in my life, I just, it operates so deceptively when you're in just doing, and I was doing it all. Like I was thriving in work. I was thriving with my masters. I was doing everything for the family until I wasn't. And I needed to reach out and just actually at that point, I needed that help. And thankfully that help got me through it. It continues to get me through now. I probably wouldn't be in a haste to jump off of them just yet. Although things are, um, you know, I can comfortably say much happier at the moment. I just, I wouldn't be in a hurry to jump off. And I equally, I wouldn't dismiss people that, you know, they're in that position. I'm not advising people should go on. I'm not advising people should come off. This is such an inter-individual thing. So personal, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's so, so personal. And, you know, the types of intervention there are, I'm on SSRIs at the moment. Um, that just gives me the ability to function, frankly, mm. at the moment. Although things are good, that gives me the ability to function. I'm not sure how much of an overshare that was, but that again, that's that whole... You know, you shared something quite deeply yeah, personal, yeah. which I appreciate. Oh, so I, felt, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. No, yeah. no, no. Um, I feel comfortable in the space doing it. And, you know, some people might listen to this and find comfort in it as well. But it's less about me. It's more about you anyway. So you're still in this position now where you're not quite sure what to do. But things are seemingly... I'm, you know, I'm ticking over. I'm ticking yeah. over. Yeah, I don't like... I've, I've learned too much. Um, I've changed too much to... I don't think I'd go all the way back to the darkness. You know, mm. I think you can't unlearn what you've learned, you know, and I, I, I don't think I'd ever get to the point of suicide again. I'm pretty confident that that I know that that is not an option. And even on the worst days, that it's not something that came back. Whereas it used to be like, it's, it's the first thing, first thing I'd, I'd go to, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I'm not too worried about that. And I'm just going to play it by ear and see how it goes you know, see how it goes. What I really need, as mad as it sounds, I need either a run of really good days or a run of really bad days. At the moment, I'm a little bit, you know, one day I'll be on top of the world and then the next day I won't. And I can't quite work out, you know, the the whys and the and the hows and the, um, yeah. So I don't want to make a, I don't want to make a long-term decision based on two good days or one bad day or, 
So I'm just going to see if it levels out and um, yeah, play it, play it by ear, man. Play it. We'll see, see how we go. Yeah. We'll see. We're how, all the work we'll in progress. I, I think it's, you know, sometimes we overcommit to something realistically we can't see through anyway, you know, and, and the other thing is you can tell me to mind my own bloody business is, you know, it doesn't, affect me obviously i'm interested but it's none of my business and i think when people do talk about these things especially on social media is it's whilst it's great that people feel comfortable to do that is there's this over familiarity attached where people feel like they deserve explanation on certain things we mm. don't owe anyone anything you no, know it's been really no, cool that you've shared all those things but yeah. equally if you decided not to disclose some of those personal details i would have totally understood as well yeah no i'm happy to chat about it i like the idea of kind of sometimes you explore things outside of the therapy room as part of a conversation and it kind of gets you to understand them a little bit better and you know also i'm sure i'm not the only person who's ever um thought and felt like this as well so you know that you never know who it's going to um who it's going to connect with mm. yeah it's just a I don't know, man. It's just what it is. I don't know if you found like when you do loads of self work and you get that level of self awareness. Sometimes I worry if I'm too self aware. Yeah, I never stop looking. <laughs> like I yeah. never stop, and everything I do, then I'm like, oh, is that my inner schema? Is that my ego? Is that my this? Is that my that? You know, yeah. or you know, and it you can live life just in your head. Basically. Yeah, that's it. And, that's I, and why, for me, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu has been such a good thing because I live. I have lived life so disembodied and just like in my head that is such a practice of embodiment for me that just brings me into my body what I'm experiencing sight smell sounds and just totally present in the task I'm doing that like playing with the kids is exactly the same mm. for me that's acts of embodiment really help me because I'm a very cognitive person I can spend a lot of time in my own head and it's Pandora's box that self-awareness thing so yeah. you need a bit of self-awareness to become more self-aware but once you're there, you can live up there. Yeah. It's torturous. It can be torturous. So true, isn't it? Yeah. My therapist said to me, um, yeah, so like the way my brain works, she said, like, mind mindfulness is no good for you. You know, mm. I've got too many thoughts. I can't sit with my thoughts. They're, they're the problem, you know. And any sort of meditation guru would always say, That's exactly why you need it. And I would say, like, that's that's not. But she said to me, You don't need mindfulness, it's overrated. You need mindlessness. You need mm. to do more things that make you look at the clock and go, fuck, it's been an hour. You know, that's what you need. Um, and I've been actively searching out more of that stuff. And it, yeah, it makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Very much so. Mark. Yeah. I think that's one of, I don't want to say to put people off because I've had lots of therapy over the years, but I find that's one of the difficulties I have with therapy is the limitation of it. There is you're disclosing your most personal, deepest, darkest thoughts and feelings about things with someone that professionally can't reflect any vulnerability back. They can't from a personal, from a place of personal disclosure, because, you know, they're there to make you the center of the conversation. So often I've found when I've been in talk therapy is there's a little bit of me that naturally wants to withdraw because you're like, oh, am I sharing too much? I don't know nothing about this person. Are they judging me? And then you start getting in your own head. So that's almost a limitation I find with talk therapy sometimes. But, you know, various different things for various different people. Uh, EMDR is something I've tried over the years. CBT. Right, yeah. yeah. So various get... different skills, very different practices. Some things work, some things don't work. I certainly, when you were talking about it, I get to that point where talking just ain't bloody helping me anymore. I've done enough talking. I've mm. done enough talking in my own head. For now, I just need to concentrate on doing other things. And if that's momentary distraction, but helpful distraction, because it's context specific, right? You've got the, the unhelpful distraction all of the time that actually, you're not, again, you're numbing everything out to actually, right now, this discomfort I'm experiencing, I just need to bloody get away from it. Mm, yeah, that's it. And not that's knowing you're doing that. Yeah, be out the other side and I'll deal with it then. I'll deal with the reasons why then for the time being, I just need to kind of just need to just be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. That was yeah, a nice I mean, little full circle. Yeah. The there, unintentional. Well, you know, <laughs> I think both of us, we're not fans of planning anything anyway. I'm, I just like the organic conversation. It just comes out. So I knew it'd be a comfortable and healthy chat anyway. I'm conscious of your time, sir. You have a fantastic podcast. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Because I highly recommend everyone goes listen to it. Oh, mate. Well, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah, it's called Proper Mental. It's been going for two and a bit years. Um, and yeah, it was a huge part of my recovery, really. Once I start taking those pills that I mentioned before, 
um, I decided that I was going to be really open. You know, I'd been off work for a, a few months and people would say to me, when are you coming back to work? And rather than uh, like hide from it and make excuses, I, I've had some problems with my mental health and it's not been very good, but I'm, you know, I'm feeling better and I'm coming back. And, and I, from going from not telling anyone and then only telling a doctor and a therapist, and that is it, to saying it to people that I kind of half knew or friends or acquaintances and the amount of people that would say like, you know, oh, my sister's got anxiety, you know, I lost an uncle to suicide and you go, hang on a minute, this isn't just me. And often, you know, I'd be in a queue in the coffee shop having like a, a like a really in-depth chat about this stuff. And I just, I loved it. It filled my soul. And I thought, where was this? When I was sat at my kitchen table at three in the morning, Googling stuff like, you know, what is happening to me? And, you know, am I going mad? And, you know, all these things. If I could have stumbled across just those sorts of two people having a chat about this stuff and known that I wasn't losing it and that it was normal and that other people suffer with this stuff. So I thought, well, how can I, I want to recreate that. I want to have these conversations. So maybe that version of me who's looking for stuff at six in the morning can find it. Um, and I thought maybe I'll do a couple of YouTube videos with a mate and we'll just put it out on this really romantic idea that someone would stumble across and I'd save a life and that would be it. And uh, yeah, I just got a bug for it. I just absolutely, uh, uh, you know, just, yeah, just loved it. I learned, I've learned so much about myself from other people, you know, I've learned a lot about being human, about compassion and empathy and understanding. And, um, you know, I've met some good friends. I've done some really fun things. I've met some people that I never thought I'd ever get to meet. Um, it's just been a hell of an experience and yeah, it goes, it just, it, they come out every Monday and I speak to all different types of people about all different types of mental health and mental illness. And, um, yeah, some of it's lived experience, some of it's, um, you know, about different organizations and yeah, just trying to just get around everyone I can. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It comes out Mondays. Yeah. sir, you are the epitome of be the change you want to see. So I thank you for that. I thank you for laying the pathway for a lot of people that needed that little bit of courage, that extra kick up the backside in a helpful way. Because a lot of this comes from personal disclosure and there's, it's, all, it's all very well having access to the information that is out there, the happy, clappy mental health stuff, but open, honest conversation around mental illness and mental disorders and people's lived experiences, which is very different as well. Is you know, In terms of diagnosable things, we can all live by certain labels, but everyone has a different experience of those labels as well. So it's really important to have those conversations. Mate, if anyone wants to find any more about you, podcast aside, where can they go? Um, yeah, at Proper Mental Podcast. Instagram, I'm kind of, that's where I'm most comfortable. I'm on the other platforms, but, you know, not very particularly interactive. It's much more just about, you know, getting the episodes out. Um, yeah, the website, propermentalpodcast.com. Yeah, anywhere, you'll find me. Yeah, I'll pop up on all the apps and all that, yeah. Tom, I appreciate you. If you have listened to this and you have enjoyed it, please do share with another. That's the only way we reach more ear holes, more people than just my mum that listen. So hopefully, if you have listened to this, do let us know. Hopefully it was helpful and I will speak to you soon.